Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. This is Allison R. Brown, and I am your host. On this episode of Schoolhouse, why don't we talk about police in our schools? It's a topic that we have definitely covered before on Schoolhouse, and today we will talk even more about police in schools, the mechanics of it, what police do when they're in schools, why they're there, how that came to be, and what they actually should do when they're in schools. My guest today is Lisa Thoreau. She is the founder and executive director of Strategies for Youth, which trains police in how to interact with young people. Welcome to Schoolhouse, Lisa. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Allison. It's a pleasure to join you on this show. Well, first, what is Strategies for Youth? Well, Strategies for Youth was founded in 2010, and it grew out of my concern that while many juvenile justice reforms were being promoted and pushed post-arrest, there was very little being done to affect the arrest of youth. And coming as we were in 2010 off a, a long and intensive wave of criminalizing really adolescent behavior in schools and on the streets, I thought it would be important to develop an organization committed to improving police youth interactions and reducing disproportionate minority contact by training law enforcement to understand youth and to rethink the value and effectiveness of arrest. And in addition to training law enforcement, we work a lot with young people to help them navigate interactions with their peers and with law enforcement as well as other authority figures. All in all, our goal is just to reduce the number of kids going into the juvenile justice system by rethinking the role of the gatekeeper. I know that training of school resource officers is one of the strategies that you employ. Right. What does that training look like? Well, we have a training called Policing the Teen Brain, Policing the Teen Brain in School, and Policing the Teen Brain in Transit. And we're focusing on changing the way law enforcement looks at youth in uh, the various places that youth are most system involved, whether it's school or transit or in the streets in their homes. We find law enforcement call to all those places and interacting with youth. So what we try and do with our training is increase the officer's developmental competence for working with youth. And by that, we give them an idea of the tectonic and seismic changes of youth during adolescence. Their brains may not be growing in size, but they're growing internally in the way the lobes are connecting, the way pieces of the brain are developing. And it explains a lot of the behaviors that we all experience during adolescence and many of the behaviors that frustrate adults and often lead them to want to punish youth. So we ground officers through the presentations by a psychologist. We always have a a psychologist or clinical social worker explaining what normative adolescent development looks like, what youth with mental health issues, and many youth, one out of five, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, has diagnosable mental health issue during adolescence. And we speak a whole lot on the impact of trauma on kids brains, psyches, and behavior. And then we put this in the context of helping law enforcement understand how to approach youth and how to avoid unnecessarily escalating interactions with youth 
as well as assuming the worst about youth. Mm -hmm. Because we find in many interactions between law enforcement and youth and youth and, and many adults, there's the assumption that the young person's behavior is intentional and defiant and bad and it needs to be punished. And what we're trying to have law enforcement consider is that all behavior is communication and the communication may you may be hearing may not be wet spoken. It may actually be a call for help mm-hmm. or a call out of fear. The second day of our training, we focus more on environmental factors. Mm-hmm. Um, we try and avoid whether or not it's nature or nurture. We assume it's both. And so after we have a psychologist present on the first day of training, on the second day, we have SFY strategies for youth staff or uh, local law enforcement trainees present to their peers about demographic factors, cultural messages youth are receiving regarding police and authority, and juvenile law for law enforcement. We also, and we're told routinely how much this matters to law enforcement, connect law enforcement with youth-serving community-based organizations because it is a very, very rare and unusual department that has strong relationships with alternative programming. Mm -hmm. And so what we're hoping to do is if officers become aware of these alternative services in the community, they can use those in lieu of arrest. Mm -hmm. And we end every training with skits involving youth in which youth will respond to officers' behavior and explain why they view an officer a certain way and just typically dovetails perfectly with what the psychologist has explained are the reasons young people act the way they do. When we do this for school resource officers or officers working in schools, it's a three-day training because, as I mentioned, we're really trying to reduce uh, disproportionate minority contact and the disparities in the public school systems are enormous when it comes to race as well as when it comes to learning disabilities. And even those two factors, race and learning disabilities, are entwined. So typically our training is two days in length. When we do the policing the teen brain at school, it's three days in length because we spend so much time focusing on what should be the role of the school resource officer, what its legal limitations are, and how to understand behaviors of youth who've been diagnosed with a special education need and have an IEP. Lisa, you and I have had conversations about police in schools, and I'm listening to you and I know that many of the people listening will want to start at a different place. And that place is, why are there police in schools in the first place? And how did that happen? This is a very fair question that needs to constantly be asked, and I'm glad you're asking it of me. I think an explanation of why police are in schools derives from the American culture, which tends to look to police to address every social ill, mm-hmm. which police are neither equipped to do, nor trained to do, mm-hmm. nor necessarily want to do or can do. The other explanation, I think, is money. There were monies freed up since 1994 for police to go into schools. And disproportionately, due to another theme in America's politics and history, youth of color and poor youth were seeing the largest numbers of police in their schools. And there's great empirical evidence of that, and the work of Aaron Kupchak and Jeff Ward uh, demonstrates how law enforcement is disproportionately deployed to schools where 
it's perceived the bad kids are. Mm -hmm. And that notion of bad kids needing police is a very old perception in America. And the need to punish instead of to understand is tied with that and tied with a lot of education policies. So I think between the belief in police as cure-alls and the money made available to them and the perception that police will especially be good for fixing problems with so-called bad kids, you see not only law enforcement in schools, but disproportionate numbers of law enforcement in schools that disproportionately serve poor children and children of color, and Mm -hmm. the two often combine. And as a result, we're seeing an escalation of certain kinds of arrests that didn't happen previously, and that's really often quite harmful. So I'm thinking of, of course, Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice, Rikia Boyd, all young people of color, black people, who were killed by police. And then in schools, very, very harsh treatment in many cases of young people, particularly young people of color by police, And, you know, I know that you appeared on news stations and elsewhere to talk about the Spring Valley High School incident in South Carolina where the young lady was so brutally and and violently arrested by the school resource officer there in the high school. So with those instances, what is your response about police in schools what they should be doing when they're in schools, and whether or not they should be there ultimately. My view of the situation is that police are there under the pretense of protecting kids inside the school. Um, And this was really spurred on by some of the terrible school shootings that occurred. But the fact is, if that was the case, police would be facing outward, and they would be trying to keep people outside of the schools from coming in and causing harm. What we see in effect and what we see in reality is that school resource officers are facing inward and on the student body and focusing on how those young people should be treated. And basically, uh, school boards and police departments have until recently, given them a carte blanche. There's no set of standards issued by the states or the federal government saying that these officers should be selected for certain capacities or qualities. There are often no law enforcement agency standards about how officers should behave in a school. There are no federal or state standards in most states. There are no state standards, as our study showed, about how officers should view their role and behave in it. When you have local law enforcement agencies and school districts developing memorandums of understanding, they are so vague and at a 30,000-foot level that they really provide officers and school officials no guidance about how that relationship should work. And then uh, you see incredible variation across law enforcement and school leadership about how the relationship should and shouldn't work Mm -hmm. to the detriment of everybody. So if you wanted things to go worse, I'm not sure that -hmm. you could have planned it better than what was done here because what happened was that law enforcement could be used to support the agenda of school officials who wanted to get rid of certain kids, Mm -hmm. and law enforcement 
could be used to advance its own agenda with school officials not knowing how to stop them. And then those would be the two ends of the continuum, and you'd see everything in between occurring, too. Mm -hmm. And the absence of clarity of the role and, frankly, the purpose of school resource officers and law enforcement in public schools in conjunction with the absence of guidance, standards, clarity of purpose has made this a big mess. And so in the last three or four years, you've seen large organizations like the International Association of Chiefs of Police and the Police Foundation urging law enforcement to remember that kids are in school to complete school, not Mm -hmm. to be systematically pulled out of it. But that's really after the barn door has been opened and the kids have fled. I also think that while it's been problematic to watch how school resource officers have behaved and some of their brutish, destructive behaviors, I've also encountered a whole lot of school resource officers who are aghast at what school administrators ask them to do Mm -hmm. and have pushed back strongly and often desperately saying, no, we are not arresting kids for this. That's not even a crime. Don't make us take over your authority. You completely undermine your authority with young people when you do that. And so we see quite a few law enforcement officers saying, no, I will not arrest a a young person for that, and even questioning some of the biases of educators. Mm. And we saw this most dramatically in a city we were working in where After our training of school resource officers, we saw a 55% decline in school-based arrests. And the officers spoke to their law enforcement agency leadership and said, we don't want to go back into the schools until the administrators understand what they can and can't use us for because we have to argue it with them all the time. This was really dramatic. I had never heard of this kind of pushback. And over the summer, we were asked to go train administrators, but very few were notified and even fewer showed up. So what's key here is the importance of viewing this as two agencies, schools and law enforcement, working together, sometimes in cahoots and sometimes in opposition, And the people who do not come out well for it are the youth, and parents are really almost like watching a tennis game. It's hard to tell who's where and in what court. And you add to that the incredible complexity often within a district. Uh, In Massachusetts, we worked with a district where 10 of the 11 schools never called the police. One school principal called that police department constantly. Mm. And the district wasn't addressing that, which makes the case for the importance of data collection, which is also all over the map when it comes to police youth interactions in schools. Mm -hmm. So it's a very complex set of relationships with no oversight, no mechanisms often to regulate the behavior of any of the adults, and the youth are often paying the price. So talk about your recent report, and it's called Where is the State? Creating and Implementing State Standards for Law Enforcement Interactions with Youth. And this is a a state-by-state survey of standards and standards in how law enforcement and schools should govern themselves and should work collaboratively with school districts and (laughs) Very striking finding that state government in all but five states play absolutely no role in setting standards. 
right? Well, thank you for inviting me to speak about this because this should be front page news, but it, it's not. In a time after Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and Mike Brown, and especially the latter two because their cases involve police, mm-hmm. it is nothing short of shocking and disturbing that state departments of public safety or their equivalent haven't gotten into the business of telling our highly decentralized law enforcement system that certain state standards must be adhered to to ensure that the constitutional rights of children and youth are protected and that certain methods of implementing constitutional approaches to policing youth are adhered to constantly, no ifs, ands, or buts. And the failure of states to do this suggests to me that there's no political will for this, and so we're going to see problems crop up again and again. Mm -hmm. Now, it's important to put this in a little bit of broader context. Unlike European countries, the United States has a decentralized law enforcement system. So at the biggest level, you have counties, usually with sheriffs, especially in the Midwest and West. That's not so true in the Northeast. In the South, it's uh, true, too, that you have sheriffs having a lot of role in unincorporated communities and then police and municipalities being linked at the incorporated or municipal level. So there are over 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States, and it's nothing short of amazing that we are seeing so little coherence among them. When a law enforcement department develops its Standards that can look to the International Association of Chiefs of Police or the Commission on Accreditation of Law Enforcement Agencies or its state's police officer standards and commissions organization, mm-hmm. uh, the police officer standards and training commissions, and look for policies that will guide law enforcement officers and law enforcement agencies' treatment of youth. The only problem is the ICP, uh, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, has very good standards. Unfortunately, they haven't been updated to reflect decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court since 2005 about police interactions. The IACP standards are specifically youth police interactions. Right. Mm -hmm. They have thousands of standards, but they have issued some just on that point. And then the Commission on Accreditation of Law Enforcement Agencies also has excellent standards in most aspects. It has nothing on how police should behave in schools. But there is nothing that compels a law enforcement agency to use any of those standards in the state of Kentucky or Idaho. So it's up to each chief to adopt those policies. And so we looked at the state police officer standards and training commissions to see if they had issued standards for how law enforcement agencies should interact with youth. And we didn't find a single one having any. And and that's disturbing, too. The closest we got was to California, which had two very limited recommendations for law enforcement agencies. And those were really very limited in scope, and so I'm being kind to include them. But you see silence and a real state deference to the decentralized law enforcement agency leadership, which frankly makes no sense. It would be much better for local law enforcement agencies to have the state 
drawing lines in the sand about behavior and compelling all law enforcement agencies in the state to behave similarly, it really increases the standard of policing and puts a floor at a minimum and gives the public a reasonable expectation of what will occur or should occur from county to county. You don't have that anywhere in the United States right now, and that is just a shock. We're hardly 21st century policing if we can't even agree on basic standards for policing. And people will say, well, what about the court decisions? Well, here's the problem with the court decisions. We worked with the firm of Kirkland and Ellis Mm -hmm. in New York City and looked at all the federal district court decisions regarding the use of unreasonable and excessive force. And within federal circuits and across circuits, the identical behavior by a youth and a police officer can lead to unbelievably different outcomes. So we're really not finding a source of stability or consistency, which we know is key for police-youth interactions within states, across states, within jurisdictions, and across jurisdictions. And our report points to how harmful that is for building legitimacy, for making interactions with law enforcement predictable, and we saw this even in the school context. It's shocking in part because the police are unique in this, and there are other systems that are decentralized as well, like foster care and adoption and health care, that still have a set of standards by which the practitioners in those fields can rely and therefore behave. So the police are somewhat of an anomaly in that there is not a system of standards for them to abide by as they're going about their interactions with young people. It is a point we make. We make it in the context of teaching, of education, for instance. The level of state oversight of teachers so far surpasses what we see as the level of oversight Mm -hmm. for law enforcement in some states. It's just mind-boggling. It doesn't make sense. It really doesn't even support the self-interest of law enforcement because it opens them up to liability. I mean, we've gone to very large law enforcement agencies and found they didn't have a single standard on how to interact with juveniles, uh, nothing. And that contributes to the perception that youth are many adults. And Mm -hmm. everything goes against that, including sometimes we'll find agencies have no standards but have great training, but the training isn't reflected in the standards. And so, Mm. and I just want to be clear that when we talk about standards, we're not simply talking about officers' obligations, but agency-wide obligations, Mm -hmm. that these are things that agencies must do to protect the rights of youth and to ensure that we're all working towards a positive outcome. And the school context shows examples of that. For instance, I don't think you could find a better set of policies than uh, what Kentucky has enacted for law enforcement officers. The only problem is, and we see this a lot, is that these are policies that are effectively an unfunded mandate. So while uh, the policies are wonderful, it's up to each individual agency and school district to fund 
the training of officers to fund the implementation and oversight of these officers. So while the language in the policies exists, the state has done nothing as far as we can tell to implement them. And Mm -hmm. even when such policies exist, as uh, the case in Covington, Kentucky demonstrated, they are flouted. And then the law enforcement agency in that, the sheriff's department, argued that the policies didn't apply to them. So again, it's the absence of political will here that is making these policies and regulations a reality. And Lisa, what is the Covington County, Kentucky case we'll share with the audience? This was a very disturbing case in which two eight-year-olds were cuffed on their upper arms because the cuffs were too big to fit and contain their wrists. These children were in a special education class uh, due to extensive trauma and PTSD issues, and a law enforcement officer cuffed them when he found their behavior unacceptable. And that is problematic in and of itself. What became even more problematic to me is that the law enforcement agency supported the sheriff deputy's decision to cuff the children Mm -hmm. and insistence on arresting them with the conclusion that these kids were dangerous felons. And Mm -hmm. that's what they answered in the complaint brought on behalf of the children. These eight-year-old children. One weighed 42 pounds, I think. One was an eight-year-old boy and one was an eight-year-old girl who were just subsequently so traumatized by this deputy's behaviors. These eight-year-old children who were 42 pounds were dangerous felons. And as soon as you decide that the policies don't apply to you, that you're going to view eight-year-olds as serious and dangerous felons, you're demonstrating a law enforcement attitude that's antithetical to permitting law enforcement in schools. Mm -hmm. And in those situations, law enforcement should not be in schools, clearly. Don't forget, none of them are trained. Mm -hmm. We recently supported language in a bill in Massachusetts that would prohibit arresting youth for so-called defiance or disrupting a lawful assembly, as our law and 47 other states' laws say. And the police have opposed this, and yet when legislators asked us about SROs, we realized they had no clue that SROs are, in fact, not trained to work with youth. There is no state mandate. What they have to be trained in in Massachusetts has never reached consensus. There's no money to train them, and yet we routinely send them in Massachusetts and so many other states into the schools completely unprepared Mm -hmm. and in many ways exacerbating problems of the most vulnerable children. And and then we're shocked at these outcomes. I'm not sure why Mm. we're shocked. We shouldn't be. The only reason we could be shocked at these outcomes is if we had ignored how so many of these interactions were occurring in communities in America with officers and youth on the streets. Mm -hmm. And my only criticism of the focus on school resource officers is there's not equal focus on police use interactions in the streets and in the homes of communities, Mm -hmm. which also bear a lot of attention or should have it. And so you and Strategies for Youth have created a parent toolkit. That's right. What is that toolkit? It's called the Parent Checklist. And it derived from watching the Richland, South Carolina case. We had been um, speaking for a year before that incident with juvenile defenders, community advocates, 
and others who were very disturbed at the way children were being treated in the public schools there. Mm-hmm. And they had asked us to submit a proposal for our training to the Sheriff's Department, which we did in April of that year. And in October, uh, the incident happened. Uh, we had submitted. The Sheriff's Department said our proposal was too expensive. We had offered to find money. The school board said they could exert no power or control over the role of SROs in their school. It was completely up to the sheriff. And this seemed wrong to me in so many ways. Mm-hmm. If you're going to have sheriff deputies in the public schools, you needed to train them first. Second of all, uh, you needed to have a recruitment system where someone who already had three civil rights actions pending against him for excessive use of force against black folks should not be in the schools, especially for predominantly children of color. And third, for the chair of the Board of Education to completely abdicate his role in this was Mm -hmm. highly problematic, too. And again, ceded authority um, in the schools to law enforcement in a way that's not helpful to anybody, certainly not the students. But what hit me the most was I learned that parents had been organizing there, and they had really come up against so many informational walls that they were incredibly frustrated. So I thought it would be really helpful for them to know what the information they needed to have would be, and that other parents in similar situations needed to know and ought to have kind of like a guide to understanding what information will help them challenge uh, school and police conduct that harms their children. So what we've done is put together this checklist so that parents can check off whether or not they've been able to receive the information or find the answers and keep in mind what they need to get so that you're going to know whether or not the SRO in your school understands that your child's on an IEP mm-hmm. and the IEP says that when your child is triggered by certain events, the best response is A, not Z. Who is paying for the school resource officers? Many folks don't know that. Who can you call if you want to appeal an officer's interaction? Many folks don't know that. Do you as a parent have the right to come to school and be notified immediately before an officer questions your child. And it's very hard to put together one set of answers to this because the states vary so much. Mm -hmm. And even within state, we see huge variations. So instead, we thought this was a huge step towards equipping parents to question the policies and make sure schools had them and to question law enforcement agencies. And in fact, after we sent out the the parent checklist, uh, one officer wrote to me, thank you so much for sending this. I realize I have a lot of education to do. Some school leaders said, I don't even know the answers to half these questions. Mm -hmm. How could we have systems working together where parents and children who are the consumers of the system don't know and can't predict what would happen to their children in these systems? That's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. That's too high risk. And so we wanted parents to have this tool, basically, to equip themselves and anticipate challenges and experiences their children might have. Everyone can find it on our website. And, of course, we're going to update it in early September to add an entire section on immigration because nobody's quite clear what to do if ICE agents show up at a school. Does the administration have a policy for informing parents, for requiring a warrant? What do you do in these and related situations? No one's quite sure. 
In closing, Lisa, I would love for you to talk about the mindset shifts, the shifts in perception that are necessary in police interactions with young people, for police, especially with young people of color, to really view them as full human beings who are children and should be permitted the freedom of their childhood. And we were talking earlier about the seven-year-old who was handcuffed in Oklahoma. We talk about that case and what that means for training that should be inclusive of that mindset shift. Well, the first and key mindset shift is to remember that children and adolescents are not adults. And you'd think, oh, well, that's no big deal. Everybody knows that. Well, they don't know it, and sometimes race plays a large role in why they don't know that. So uh, we find that this age group across cultures really frustrates people, and I think it teens in particular scare adults because any behavior of a teen that they find problematic, they fear will be something that's carved in stone and that teens will continue behaving in that same manner till kingdom come, often forgetting how we all went through phases of irritating behavior. But then we know that youth of color in the United States are perceived to be older, perceived to be more savvy, perceived to be more sexually active in all sorts of perceptions that are really just not accurate or fair or certainly not helpful, that's for sure. And we are seeing that those perceptions tend to change the expectations officers have of youth. And on our website, um, there's a wonderful interview of Dr. Richard Dudley, a psychiatrist from New York City, who is a forensic psychiatrist and works with and on behalf of young people across the country, showing how race and authority relations interact to the harm of many African-American youth, male youth in particular, where we're thinking, yeah, well, they can handle this. And Mm. it's not clear why we're thinking that, because they grew up around violence, because they've been used to being treated violently. It's not clear, but it's certainly harmful. That Mm -hmm. part is clear. And so the first mindset then is to remember that these are children and youth, and our first obligation is to protect them, not harm them. Sadly, two of my reports are titled, First Do No Harm. Mm -hmm. The second thing we have to recognize is that youth are scared of police. White youth are suspicious, but black youth and Latino youth are scared out of their minds. Mm -hmm. And if law enforcement understands that these youth are traumatized either directly or vicariously, traumatized directly by dint of what they've experienced or what family members have experienced or the transgenerational transmission of trauma. They'd understand better some of the traumatized responses of youth and not implicitly default to the assumption that the kid is guilty. Mm-hmm. Instead, they would default to the assumption that the young person is scared. I like to illustrate that point by noting that when we do our trainings, we often bring youth in to participate in skits at the end. And we have had at least five occasions where we've brought a group of youth in. And as soon as they see the officers, they run out of the room. Mm. Or in the case of one 12-year-old, panicked so badly, he just curled into a ball under a table and we couldn't get him out. 
And while this was very painful for the children, I hope it taught those officers a lesson about the extent and depth of fear these children have of law enforcement, all of which has escalated in the last three years due to some of these very shocking police interactions, not just with kids, but with adults too, which have, for all intents and purposes from young people's point of view and, frankly, from the legal point of view, been vindicated by American juries saying, yeah, the officer had reason to fear for the officer's safety, mm. which in and of itself is a standard that is so harmful and yeah. so tied to bias, it's hard to not sputter when one talks about it. So that's the second mindset, understanding the trauma you enter into interactions with police feeling. And then the third is that they must understand that arrest and detention really don't work for the vast, vast majority of youth. Hmm. If you want to stop a youth from offending or engaging behavior that is not publicly safe, that really harms the social fabric in some way, the adult systems, which barely work well for adults, really, really do not work well for kids. And that is a mind and paradigm shift that is enormous for officers who are used to and have only been trained, frankly, to arrest and detain. So the Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative has done this country a great service by saying to law enforcement around the country, nope, you don't have detention, which means the kid is going to be released before you maybe get back into your car at the detention center. So that has direct implications for what your relationship with young people are, since you don't have that uh, lock them up relief valve working for you here. And... These are key questions that need to be discussed, but we find too often most law enforcement agencies do not view talking about youth or dealing with youth as a priority. In fact, we find typically that youth are viewed as a priority only when they're perceived as a problem, and it's the rare department that says youth are our priority. That way we can issue problems. And we've seen this in a couple of law enforcement leaders, and they've seen and reaped the benefits of that. I'm thinking of the late James Waters, the assistant chief in Indianapolis, or Bill Dean in Virginia Beach, or Robert Haas in Cambridge Police Department in Massachusetts, or Kevin Bethel in Philadelphia, who just understand that if we don't tend to youth now and if we punish them, we'll regret it later. It's very, very short-sighted. Lisa Thoreau, thank you so much for educating us today, for being a guest on Schoolhouse. And if people want to find more information about you and strategies for youth, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, you're welcome to look at our website, which is www.strategiesforyouth.org, all spelled out. We hope you'll use all the resources on our website. And if you can think of ways to improve on them, we also hope you'll call it so we can make sure we're answering the needs, parents, community organizers, students, and people who care have to making sure young people in America are safe. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and find the Communities for Just Schools Fund at cjsfund.org. Thanks to all of you for listening. Have a wonderful week.